Welcome to the Sufi Reverberations podcast, where each week, God willing, you will be able to hear a poem, a story, a meditation, and a musical interlude that give expression to one Sufi's perspective concerning the mystical dimension of Islam. My name is Anab Whitehouse, and I will be your host. Although I am not a sheikh, nonetheless I did have the opportunity to spend 16 years in the company of a Sufi saint of the 20th century, and by the grace of God was able to gain a few insights into the nature of the Sufi mystical path through that association. So without further delay, let's proceed to the essential contents of this episode. following selection is entitled, The Gift. Earlier, a gift was given to me, beautiful, fragile, but a mystery whose nature and purpose I did not see. Its delicate features gave off a strange light as if powered deep from within, a bright glow that illumined the surrounding night. Mesmerized by its possibilities, awareness parted like ancient red seas, as suddenly it seemed to question me. Do you know who I am or why I'm here? Embarrassed, perplexed, and beset by fear, my soul was in chaos. I strained to hear. Yet nothing was spoken. Instead I heard thoughts thundering across my heart, like herds of unicorns, unique, unreal, absurd. First faith, Love, and then generosity, arose within, followed by empathy, acceptance, openness, and simplicity. Forgiveness appeared, humility too, friendship, trust, peace, each second something new. Honesty, purity, the thoughts ran true. Strength, nobility, and integrity passed by. Then a quiet came that was eerie. The thoughts had stopped, but... I did not feel free. What value should be assigned to this event? Did a fleeting visit mark my descent into madness, or was something else meant? Reflection ceased when the gift seemed to speak. You don't recall me? Perhaps you're too weak from that game with yourself called hide-and-seek. Or maybe memory has been dulled by years of worldly seduction, just one lie after another, till it's time to die. You have needed my help every day of life, but there are others you obey, so alas, you have lost touch with my way. I am the portal for which you must go, to reach the truth of your being, to know who in essence you are. I'm not your foe. Yet, you resist and ignore my presence. Those thoughts heard within your heart are my sense, reminders from God, I'm your innocence.
Prayer Revealed is the title of this story. He was the elder brother, and he was hurt that his younger brother never visited any of his spiritual services or gatherings. Many times he had complained to his mother. She either responded to what he said with the wisdom of silence, or she would say something such as, Well, dear, you know your brother always has been a little different and strange with respect to the way he goes about things. He loves you very much, and I am sure no slight or insult is intended by his behavior. From time to time she would casually mention to her youngest son that his eldest brother was upset that his younger brother never attended any of the spiritual sessions being conducted at the center where the elder brother presided as spiritual leader and authority. Her youngest son would nod in acknowledgement and respond along the following lines. Yes, Mom, I know he is annoyed with me. He has invited me to his center many times and I feel badly for having to make excuses about why I can't come to those sessions, but there are some very good reasons for this, one of which is that I do not want him to be embarrassed by anything that might happen if I were to come. Now the younger brother also was interested in mysticism. He kept his activities very quiet and hidden from his elder brother and even from his mother. His spiritual pursuits didn't involve anything immoral, illegal, or hurtful to others. Nonetheless, experience had taught him that talking to people about what he was doing only led to misunderstanding, conflict, and problems. And, consequently, he preferred to go about life in his own quiet way. He had tremendous love for his elder brother. He was happy. His elder brother had such high standing in the community and was well regarded by many, many people, some of whom had genuine, sincere affection for his elder brother. Yet spirituality had called the younger brother in a different direction. Someday, perhaps, the younger brother might be able to convey to his elder brother something of the nature of the spiritual quest in which he, the younger brother, was interested, but not at the present time. Over the next ten months, the foregoing scenario played itself out on a number of occasions and through a variety of venues. The elder brother would grumble to the mother, the mother would pass along the complaint to her youngest son. Through one means or another, the younger son would hear, accept, and continue to avoid accepting the constant stream of invitations issued to him by his elder brother. Although the younger brother always had been very courteous, kind, and compassionate when he refused his elder brother's overtures, the younger brother was beginning to run out of excuses that had a ring of plausibility to them. The younger brother had become quite adept and proficient in creating tales of urgency and woe to which he was being called, and thereby offered an explanation for why he would not be able to attend his elder brother's next gathering. Of late, however, the muse for excuses was either beginning to run dry or hiding from the younger brother, and as a result, the situation was becoming a little dicey. Furthermore, the elder brother had begun to suspect that while the reasons being given by his younger brother might be true in some way, they were not entirely credible, or those quote-unquote reasons might be credible, but were not entirely true. Being a resourceful and an adaptable individual, 
The elder brother devised a plan to make his younger brother's attendance at one of the elder brother's gatherings something of a fayette accompli. One day the two brothers happened to cross paths while they were going about their respective lives within the city. After exchanging a polite amount of chit-chat, the elder brother said, I would like you to be the guest speaker at one of my weekly sessions, and I would like to set a date and time when you would be free to participate. From the moment the breath of his elder brother had been used to propel these words to the world at large, the younger brother knew the noose of acceptance had been placed around his neck. He knew by the way his elder brother raised the matter that as far as the latter was concerned, if the two of them had to stand there all day, night, and into the next morning, the elder brother would ask about dates until the end of time in order to finally force his younger brother into submission on this matter and agree that, yes, he was free on such and such a date, just this side of Judgment Day. Rather than try to delay the inevitable, and instead of trying to outflank his brother any longer with respect to this issue, the younger brother relented. He would be, quote-unquote, free in several weeks and would attend his elder brother's spiritual circle. The elder brother was very happy with his younger brother's willingness to cooperate. He thanked his younger brother and ambled off, whistling an ode of some kind to joy. In the days intervening between the ambush and the gathering, the elder brother became busy with publicizing his younger brother's forthcoming appearance at the spiritual center. Everybody was looking forward to the occasion since, for most of them, the younger brother was perceived to be something of a recluse and enigma, and many of the members of the center had known of the elder brother's long-standing, genuine desire to have his younger brother attend at least one of the weekly gatherings. The eventful day finally arrived. The crowd which assembled was fairly substantial. First, the elder brother arrived and sat in one of the chairs that had been placed on the stage near to the rostrum. Shortly thereafter, the younger brother arrived, followed closely by a number of his spiritual associates. The elder brother signaled for his brother to sit on the stage with him. The younger brother complied. The session began. As was true of every such gathering, the proceedings were begun with a prayer that usually was led by the elder brother. Out of courtesy and sincere humility, the elder brother extended an invitation to the younger brother to lead the congregational prayer. Out of courtesy and sincere humility, the younger brother declined, preferring to defer to his elder brother on this occasion. The elder brother bowed to the wishes of his younger brother and began the prayer, which consisted of different segments, part said aloud, part said in silence, part in praise of God, part in gratitude for the blessings which had been bestowed by the divinity, and part in remembrance of this or that facet of spirituality. Several minutes into the prayer, the younger brother rose from his chair, walked down the stairs, and proceeded to walk to one of the center's exits. When the individuals who had accompanied the younger brother saw this, they too got up and began to leave. All of this created quite a commotion. A number of the elder brother's close friends were quite upset with the rudeness of what transpired. They felt the younger brother's actions were very disrespectful and inconsiderate towards the elder brother. Consequently, these friends of the elder brother rushed out of the center 
desiring to confront the younger brother about the incident, wishing to avoid having a bad situation deteriorate further. The elder brother hurried out of the building as well and was preparing himself for quelling whatever unpleasantries might have arisen outside of the building. As the elder brother neared the crowd in front of the center, he could hear the voices of some of his friends berating his younger brother with pointed questions and comments of one kind or another. His younger brother was silent, just listening to the accusations being hurled at him. Struggling, the elder brother gradually worked his way to the focus of the fray. He stepped between his younger brother and the people who were busy disparaging the latter. Holding up his hands, he asked for everyone to stop arguing. Perhaps, he said, we should discuss the situation without rancor. When the crowd had quieted down, the elder brother, pointing to one of his friends, said, Okay, why are you upset? The man, making an effort to control his temper, replied, We think, and as he said this, he motioned his head in a way that included many of the people in the crowd, that what your brother did was very wrong and disrespectful, not only to you, but to the congregation and to God. We feel it was sacrilegious. The younger brother asks, What did I do? To which the friend of the elder brother retorted, Why you left the prayer? Everybody saw you do this. The younger brother glanced at the man and then looked at his brother for a few seconds. Finally he said, I only left the prayer because my brother did, and as you all know, it is the duty of those in attendance to follow the leader of the congregational prayer. The younger brother's comments caused a stir of confusion to ripple throughout the crowd. One of the people curried the younger brother with, What do you mean? Your elder brother left the prayer. This is nonsense intended to cover up your lack of spiritual etiquette. The way in which you are trying to make your elder brother the fall guy in this fiasco is nothing less than disgraceful, and you should be ashamed of yourself. This man was about to add further insults to his offering when the elder brother shook his head, smiled in a sheepish way, and said, No, my younger brother is right. Leave him alone. The people present pressed the elder brother for an explanation. He responded by saying, When I was giving the prayer, a thought came to my mind suddenly about having forgotten to send off a package to a friend of mine. And it was at this point that my younger brother got up and walked out of the building. So he was right. I already had left the prayer for something else. He was silent for a brief period and then he addressed the crowd. My brother saw me leave the prayer, but none of the rest of you did. All of you only saw the exterior of the situation. That is, the part where my younger brother left the prayer in a physical sense, a prayer that I already had left in a spiritual sense. He gave his brother an affectionate, warm, and repentant hug, asking, What would have been the theme of your talk? The younger brother simply said, The essence of prayer. But now I think the talk is no longer necessary. Of all the possible Sufi drinking places that populate the universe, some of which are run by spiritual luminaries, and others that are operated through the fate lights of volunteers that inhabit life's spiritual skid row, 
You have stumbled into the Sufi Reverberations podcast, a low-end establishment, but one where its patrons aspire for more. Today's Sufi essay is entitled, Science. The general impression of many people not involved with the Sufi path is that mysticism is far removed from the sort of rigorous methodology which characterizes modern science. In point of fact, this impression is completely wrong. Descriptions of modern science tend to vary somewhat from person to person, 
This descriptive variance is true even within the sciences. Nonetheless, there are certain basic themes that usually are entailed in all of these descriptions, irrespective of whatever other differences there may be in such descriptions. These core currents in the scientific process are probably seven in number. 1. Science is rooted in empirical observation. 2. An emphasis on instrumentality, both for purposes of the detection as well as measurement of various phenomena. 3. The central role of recursive methodology. 4. The need for objectivity. 5. The issue of consensus among a community of knowers. 6. The requirement of replication. 7. The desirability of prediction. All of the foregoing elements are present in the Sufi mystical path. The discussion which follows is merely an overview of what is meant by the foregoing methodological principles in the context of the Sufi science of mysticism. The empirical roots of the Sufi path come in many forms. Not only do the normal, external, sensory channels provide empirical data, there are internal channels of empirical data as well. Dreams, hal or mystical states, makam, spiritual stations, kashf, mystical unveilings, and ilham, that is, flashes of divine intuition, also provide infinite sources of empirical data. Furthermore, these internal sources of empirical data come in different manifested forms of intensity and certainty. As is true in the case of modern sciences, there is a considerable difference between the empirical character of the reports of a trained observer and the reports of an untrained individual. For example, not everyone who looks at an X-ray or who examines a photograph of the traces of a subatomic event can correctly interpret this empirical data. Similarly, not everyone who undergoes a mystical dream, state, station, or unveiling is able to understand correctly the empirical data to which such experiences give expression. The Sufi path provides an intense program of training so that its inherents may become competent, exacting, empirical observers. The intensity and rigor of these program rivals, if not exceeds, anything which modern science offers in the way of training its observers. Modern science employs a variety of instruments in its pursuit of understanding. On the one hand, there are what might be termed natural instruments, such as logic, reason, and mathematics. On the other hand, there are different kinds of external apparatus or instruments used in the detection and measurement of various phenomena. The Sufi mystical path employs as well a variety of instruments. In addition to the instrumental capabilities of the mind, for example, logic, reasoning, which mysticism shares in common with modern science, there also are other instruments available to the mystic quest for understanding. According to the Sufi masters, the heart, that is the spiritual entity, not the physical object, is the locus of gnosis. This provides a direct, conceptually unmediated engagement of different dimensions of divine reality. Another instrument spoken of by Sufi masters is the seer or mystery. The seer is said to be the locus of spiritual witnessing with respect to whatever God may disclose to the individual. 
Another modality of instrumentation comes through the ruh, or spirit. Sufi masters describe the spirit as being the locus of love for divinity. The love of the spirit enables the individual to experience, know, and understand life, identity, and one's relationship with divinity in a manner which is different from but supplemental to the other spiritual instruments of mind, heart, and seer. A further instrument of the Sufi path is referred to as the kafi, or hidden. The kafi is described as being the locus of manifestation for the spiritual illumination, wisdom, knowledge, and understanding that comes through encounters with the divine lights and colors of a certain realm of God's dominion. Beyond the kafi, there is further potential for spiritual instrumentation capable of engaging still further dimensions of reality. These concern certain modalities of divine mysteries and secrets which are breathed into the essential capacity of human beings from the Spirit of God. The instruments of modern science must all be calibrated to be of value. This also is the case on the Sufi path. Mystical instruments, like their physical counterparts, only produce reliable results after a process of calibration in which a variety of instrument adjustments are necessary to eliminate various sources of distortion and inconsistent readings. Modern science employs a recursive methodology that entails a series of repetitive steps, which hopefully permits one to become closer and closer to the true character of some aspects of reality being encountered through experience. In effect, one feeds the results from one cycle of repetitive methodological steps back into the next cycle of such steps in order to generate improved accuracy, understanding, and so on over time. On the Sufi path, recursive methodology plays a key role as well. One starts out by, if God wishes, cleansing, balancing, and transforming the ego or false self through repetitive cycles of prayer, fasting, charity, and so on. This constitutes the first step of repetitive steps. One takes the results from the first application of recursive methodology concerning the ego and proceeds, God willing, to purify the heart through zikr or remembrance of God. This is a second cycle of repetitive steps that builds on the accomplishments of the first cycle. The next set of repetitive steps involves the seer or mystery. If God wishes, through a process referred to by Sufi masters as emptying the seer of other than God, the understanding of the individual is further supplemented and complemented. A further cycle of the process of recursive methodology is encountered when, God willing, the spirit undergoes the perfection of its spiritual potential. Once again, the application of recursive methodology through the process of perfecting the Spirit brings the individual, by the grace of God, to a deeper, fuller, richer understanding of different dimensions of the reality of being. To be objective, one needs to eliminate as many sources of bias, prejudice, and distortion, as well as error, as is possible. The search for truth must be freed from all forces that would compromise the integrity of that search. Sufi masters outline the two major expressions of objectivity on the mystical path. The first concerns a condition known as fana. Fana occurs when the false self dissolves before the presence of divinity. 
since the false self is a major source of error and distortion, the condition of fana enhances the degree of objectivity in one's engagement of reality. The second source of objectivity on the Sufi path comes through the spiritual condition of Baka. This condition occurs when the true self and essential capacity of the individual become established. In a sense, Baka is a spiritual version of an unobtrusive measure. In Baka, one sees by the vision of God and one hears by the hearing of God and so on. Consequently, there is nothing which one does which intrudes into the engagement of experience and distorts the nature of that experience. There is a limiting factor in the foregoing which is a function of the spiritual capacity of the individual. One cannot experience or know more than one has the capacity to experience and know. Spiritual capacity, however, does not distort or introduce error. Whatever is experienced is true and real as far as it goes. On the other hand, the spiritual experience, knowledge, and understanding made possible by the grace of God through the full realization of one's spiritual capacity do not exhaust what can be experienced, known, or understood with respect to divine realities. The community of knowers in modern science plays an important role in considerations of methodology and evaluation. The community of knowers establishes the parameters of agreement and permitted disagreement within which the process of science is to be conducted. There is a similar community of knowers in the Sufi mystical tradition. Unlike modern science, however, the essence of what is agreed upon by the mystical community of knowers has not changed since the inception of such a community. The Sufi mystical community of Noahs consists of all of the authentic Sufi masters of the path, both present and past. All of these masters are in agreement concerning the structural character of human beings and what is necessary to work towards the full realization of the essential, spiritual, nature and capacity of the human being. Sufi masters do not always share the same understanding in all matters. Like their counterparts in the community of Noahs in modern science, not all Sufi masters are equal in spiritual capacity or realization. Nevertheless, irrespective of whatever differences in spiritual capacity and realization exist among Sufi masters, none of this affects the agreement about the general character of what constitutes spiritual progress on the path. One goes from seeking to finding to gnosis of to loving, to fana, and finally, to unity in divinity. Different people may experience these stages in self-similar rather than self-same ways. However, the essence of oneness remains in the midst of these differences. The issue of replication is at the heart of modern science. If the results of a research project cannot be repeated by other investigators, the original research cannot be confirmed and therefore lacks scientific credibility and reliability. The procedures for setting up and carrying out a given line of inquiry must be clearly stated. This is necessary so that any qualified and competent researcher can follow those procedures and produce a result which reflects, within certain allowable limits of difference, the outcome of the original research. The process of replication is also central to the Sufi mystical path. 
Indeed, the nature of the mystical path is itself the process of replication, which clearly has been described by all competent and qualified spiritual researchers who have preceded one on the path. If one follows the procedures and methods indicated, then, God willing, one will arrive at the same sort of outcome and conclusions as did the original researchers. These results are expressions of universal laws concerning the inherent nature of the relationship between human beings and divinity. Finally, although not all sciences exhibit the capacity to predict on the basis of known principles how certain phenomena will unfold over time, mystical science does have this capacity. However, for a variety of reasons, Sufi masters often will not indulge others or themselves with public exhibitions of their God-given gifts to predict how events will unfold. There are many well-documented accounts of the ability of Sufi masters and Sufi saints to tell what will happen before a given event manifests itself in the physical world. There are also well-known accounts of the ability, by the grace of God, of various practitioners of the Sufi path to be able to describe and subsequently have corroborated what is going on simultaneously at considerable distance from them. Above and beyond such favors of God, there is a precision to the predictive understanding that Sufi masters have concerning the effect on the individual of different spiritual practices or lack thereof. This understanding comes from the light of God and allows the Sufi master to be able to guide initiates along the mystical path with precision as a result of that understanding. According to Sufi masters, there are different levels of reality. The lowest realm concerns the world of corporeal bodies. This is known as Nasut. Next comes the realm of the souls of all created things. This is the level of Malakut. Beyond this is the realm of Jabrut. This level concerns the attributes of divinity. After the realm of Jabrut is the level of Lahut. This concerns the fixed forms of non-existence, which, if God wishes, a given reflected existence through the divine command of creation, kun, or be, become. Beyond the realm of Lahut is Hahut. This is the divine essence which makes all the other levels possible. For the most part, modern science only explores the lowest realm of existence, namely Nasut, which is the realm of corporeal bodies. Modern physical science, unlike mystical science, has no capacity to explore any of the other realms of being. Unfortunately, all too many physical scientists rationalize the foregoing limitation by dismissing the other realms of being irrelevant to the process of science. Mystical sciences, in other words, Sufi masters, indicate that in many fundamental ways, such realms are not irrelevant to the process of science. In fact, according to practitioners of the Sufi path, the very first act one must perform in order to seek the truth is to cleanse and purify the self. As such, science of whatever kind is, in essence, a moral and spiritual activity. Scientific methodology has value and appeal precisely because, among other things, it gives expression to a way of trying to preserve the integrity of the scientific process and protect the results of that process from being compromised and rendered unreliable. Mystical science pursues the value and 
appeal of such methodologies to its furthest limits possible. You have been listening to the Sufi Reverberations podcast. I hope you will join me next week for a new episode of this program. May peace be your companion. Thank you.